open our Bibles to Luke 23. We just have one verse this morning. Verse 33. Warn you ahead of time, we have a lot of cross-references. So get your Bibles ready. Chapter 23, verse 33. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right hand, and the other on the left. I chose this verse. On Wednesday, um, we did a study on suffering that Jesus went through for us, and we actually gave a detailed account of death by crucifixion. I read a pretty lengthy article that I pulled off the internet, what actually a person goes through when they're crucified. And if you'd like that, you can, you can get it on the CD. So um, the whole study this morning is really a, a, a Bible study on suffering and its importance. If you go back to chapter, um, if you look at chapter 24, picking up in verse 13, I won't read all this, but basically this is in the afternoon after the resurrection. And two of the disciples are discouraged Um, They're making their way home, and the Lord comes up alongside of them, but it says he purposely does not reveal his appearance to them. He said he hid it. Now, one of the guy's name is Cleopas. We don't know the other one's name. It just, um, the Lord comes up to him in verse 17, and he says, what kind of conversation is this that you're having with one another? And why are you walking and why are you sad? And they go on to say, are you a stranger? Haven't you heard? Um, and the Lord plays dumb in verse 19 and he says, well, what things? What are you talking about? And they say about Jesus, uh, we were hoping, verse 21, past tense. He was our hope. We were hoping that he would redeem us and set up his kingdom. Um, but now he's dead. We're going home and try to start over. And he speaks to them about, um, in verse 25, he looks at them and says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then to enter into his glory? He's basically telling them, you guys haven't studied your body Bible very well because if you read the things concerning the Messiah when he comes, he is, it, it speaks so much about suffering. Uh, he had to suffer. So we have heard, all of us here have all heard people say, you know, if God is a loving God, then why is there suffering in the world? Anybody hear that besides me? If God's a loving God, then why do people suffer? Well, I've entitled the morning's message, There is a Reason. And I have to confess, I stole the title from Alison Krauss. She has a song about suffering. And uh, the title of the song is, There is a Reason. Why do we suffer? And the gist of the song is about that. Uh, So there is a reason I've chosen that to answer that question. What question? 
well, if God is a loving God, then why do people suffer? The Bible study this morning is why there is suffering and why God allows it to happen. First, with the Lord himself. Secondly, with his disciples and Paul. And then thirdly, with you and I. There is a reason God allows suffering and the scriptures has a lot to say about it. This morning, we're going to look at three sides of um, the Christian life and suffering. Um, Number one, first of all, it's a natural part of the Christian life. Should we start with an amen already? (laughs) It's a natural part of the Christian life. Number two, because Jesus suffered, we will too. And number three that I found unique as I was studying this week is spiritual warfare can bring on physical sickness, sorrow, and suffering. And we're going to find that the scriptures teach exactly that. Days when you're going through things and something's just not right, you're not feeling good, and you can't put your finger on it, what the problem is. Um... When it comes to suffering, number one, there are no exceptions for the true believer. Another good place for an amen. No no exceptions. 2 Timothy 3.12, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. Persecution. So don't ever think that you're exempt from that. Actually, the prosperity teachers um, uh, say you have a lack of faith if you do suffer. And that's just putting more of a guilt trip on something that's the natural part of the the Christian's life. To tell you it's a lack of faith on your part because you're not accepting by faith the healing God wants for you. After all, isn't the joy of the Lord your strength? Let's balance it out here a little bit. That's true. But let's not just give half a gospel here. The Bible, when we teach all of it, clearly, as you're going to see this morning, how many, how many times it's mentioned, but how much it's avoided in the church today. Why? Because it's not happy clappy. Talking about suffering isn't going to make you feel really good, but it is a reality. And unless we understand that this is a reality of what God, God's word teaches, then we're going to stumble when we do suffer. What's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? We'll be in Job eventually. But the first two chapters set up the rest of the book of Job. Job is a long book. But all his friends could come up with for Job's suffering is, Job, obviously, you sin somewhere. So why don't you just confess it and make it right and everything will be okay. We're going to find out that's not the case at all. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, let's go to um, First Peter we'll start with this morning, chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, picking it up, oh, in verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. And a lot of times we, we do think, what's going on here? No, don't think it's strange when you go through a fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. But rejoice. To the extent that you are partakers of Christ's suffering. And when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, if you are reproached 
for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief, an evildoer, or a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous are scarcely saved, well then where will the ungodly and a sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as a faithful, as to a faithful creator. So here, um, Peter, I'm going to get into him personally here in just a minute, but um, let's go back to chapter 2 and looking at verses 18. Actually, it's three, 3, 4, and 5 when Peter wrote this. Primarily, it's about suffering when Peter wrote uh, his epistles. Let's pick up um, chapter 2, verse 18 to uh, 24. It says, servants, be submissive to your masters. In other words, uh, if you're you're working for somebody who's your boss, then you're to honor him as your boss and be submissive to him. Do it with fear, not not only to the good guys and gentle, but also to the guys who I would say are jerks. They use the word harsh here. (laughs) But maybe some of you are working for a guy that's just harsh. And he said, well, you submit to him too. If he's paying your paycheck... Um, and signing it, uh, verse 19, for this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, a couple things have to be in play here you're going to get wronged for doing the right thing. That's what this is saying. And when that happens, take it patiently uh, because this is commendable to the Lord. The first thing that Jesus said from the cross when they nailed him to the cross was, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. Same with an unbeliever. People who treat you wrongfully, they're always in the flesh. (laughs) You know, it's like being in the flesh. Well, they're always in the flesh if you're not born again. So we can't expect them to respond the way we need to respond when we go through difficult times. Verse 21, for to you this you were called because Christ also suffered for us. Notice, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps who committed no guile, nor was guile found in his mouth. Also, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Remember it says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. You don't have to worry about it. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 
that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. By those stripes you were healed. And that's the suffering that the Lord went through there. Um, Chapter 2, verse... um, No, I want to go to uh, chapter 3 now, 1 Peter chapter 3, picking it up in verse... um, 18, again, about the Lord's suffering. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And uh, we have uh, by whom also he went and preached. So, Actually, I wanted to go back to um, 13 and make my way down here because there's verses that lead up to that. Let's go back to the conduct is the title above verse 13. Conduct and suffering. I don't know what your Bible says. That's what mine says. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their hearts nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts. And I like this. And always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, whenever you're in conversation, you're always looking for that crack. (laughs) That open door of being able to um, share the gospel with somebody. And um, we're told to be instant in season and out of season, just ready and, and how to do it? Well, it says with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you, in other words, they get upset with you um, because you're witnessing to them and tell them they need to repent, they need to give their life to Christ. Um, uh, some receive it and some get upset. There's not too much in between. You, they, they blow you off. They defame you as evildoers. Those who revile your good conduct in Christ must, uh, um, in conduct in Christ, may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And then Christ also also suffered for our sins. So we're just getting started. But look how much already the scriptures not only tell us that the Lord did, but uh, let's turn over to the book of uh, Philippians. I'll give you a moment to get there. Philippians. Okay, Dwight Hawker did put a marker there. Here it is. Philippians, um, let's pick it up. Um, chapter one, we'll make our way through three verse three of chapters here. Uh, in chapter one, Verse um, 29 and 30 is what I want to draw your attention to. It says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his name's sake. So here, Paul writing to the Philippians, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. So here we're clear told that again we're going to suffer Um, chapter 3 
Go to chapter three, picking it up in verse 10. Paul saying that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That's what we want. Power. Give me some power. Like power. Power's good. The power of his resurrection. And then it goes on to say, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed uh, to his death. So we have, I think it's in chapter four. Let me just look quickly. I'm just going to leave it at that, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed even to his death. If you're taking notes this morning, you jot down Romans 8, um, verse 17. Paul says, if you're children, then you're heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now there's an if, if indeed we suffer with him. So there's a connection If we're going to reign with him, then we'll indeed suffer with him that we also might be glorified together. So we have in the New Testament the Lord trying to explain this to his disciples ahead of time. But they didn't want any part of it. It was over their head. If you're taking notes in Mark 8 verse 31, it says Jesus began to teach them. He's talking to the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after that, three days rise again. So even before his suffering, he was trying to get the guys to understand that's what's going to happen. Right after that verse, if you continue on to read, you know what they start doing? They begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest when they get to Jerusalem. <laughs> what? What do you mean suffer? The kingdom's coming. Uh, I want to be prime minister. I want to be secretary of state. They, they were arguing over who's going to have a position rather than saying, guys, guys, no, 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 no. Um, your lives are about to change radically and what you're thinking is going to happen isn't going to happen. And he clearly, in all the Gospels, tells them ahead of time. As we look at the Old Testament, the prophecies that foretell Jesus' suffering. Now this is something that the religious leaders just couldn't reconcile. How can he come suffering and how can he set up a kingdom at the same time? So they rejected the one and held on to the other, just like a lot of people do today. Only tell me the good stuff. Don't tell me hard stuff. Don't tell me I'm going to go through fiery trials. I don't want to hear that. Well, then you got to rip out a lot of pages of the Bible. (laughs) So let's go to Isaiah chapter 53. How they can get through this without understanding that when the Messiah comes, the things that he will experience. Let's pick it up in verse 3 through 7. First of all, when the Messiah comes, he's going to be despised. Anybody here like to be despised? And rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted, 
But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, that's the whipping that the Lord received, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Now go down to verse 10. With all this suffering, we find out that this was the Father's plan all along. We look at verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. The Father has. When you made his soul an offering for sin... Uh, He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. So this Isaiah 53, Old Testament prophecies, telling what it was like being the Lord. Now don't get me wrong, I I personally think the Lord had a great sense of humor. And... um, and there's, there's places in there when you read between the lines you can see it. But he also um, was fully man and was tested and tempted and tried and he was known as a man of sorrows at the same time. Um, go to Psalm 22. As we look at Psalm 22, I'll just point out selective verses here. Verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can't begin to put in the words what this verse is all about because it never happened before. I can't wrap my head around something always being. Eternity past, never having a beginning. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit have always been. I'm finite, that's why I can't wrap my head around it. Now, if I look forward, living forever, I can, I can understand that because of its, its, its yet future. But here for the first time, the, the, the agony of his soul, my, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me now? And then we read in verse 14 and 15, again, his suffering. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. Now, on Wednesday, we actually went into detail and described after a certain amount of minutes of death by crucifixion, what happens is your shoulder separates from your arms, and your arms actually are lengthened because it's disconnected here. So that's what he's saying. My bones are all out of joint. He's talking about the, the pain that he went through. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shred, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, that's a reference to Gentiles. The assembly of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. The Psalms were, David wrote most of them, right around 1000 B.C., Uh, Death by capital punishment would have been stoning. This was a Roman invention that had not even been invented yet. For several 300 years, 
um, there was uh, no such thing as crucifixion. But they pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones, and they look at me. And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22 gives us more uh, information uh, about how the Lord suffered than actually that we have for us uh, in the Gospels. Okay, I'd like to take a look at the Old Testament prophets and New Testament disciples as we see the kind of suffering they went through. And for that, we need to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 11. I'm gonna give you a, um, some time to get to Hebrews 11. We call this the Hall of Faith. In other words, when we read this, we are trying to emulate. These are examples of men we're to look up to on how to walk the Christian life. Let's start with Moses in verse 24. Now, he had it all. It's just like in the movie, The Ten Commandments. He could have been heir to the throne. And yet, in verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. We're talking about the most powerful position on planet Earth at the time. Choosing. So now we see that um, choosing and going along with suffering is actually a choice. In other words, you realize what you're getting yourself into. That's not presented today when we tell a person about, when you give your life to Jesus, boy, life is gonna be a rose garden. No more problems for you. Piece of cake. And uh, nothing is farther from the truth. We, don't, we, sh- we should tell them, okay, uh, you're gonna be in warfare 24-7 for the rest of your life. It says the flesh lusts against the spirit, in the spirit against the flesh. So here it is, bam, 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 24-7. Flesh wants to do this, the Holy Spirit says, no, I'd rather have you do this. Yeah, but there's suffering involved with that. Yeah, it's a choice. And that's what we read, choosing, rather than the world, having the whole world, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now let's just get something straight here. In the world, a lot of people don't come to Christ. Why? Because there's pleasure in sin. Good place for an amen. amen. Why don't people come to the light? John 3 tells us. If they come to the light, then their deeds are exposed. and They don't want their deeds exposed. So they don't come to the light. I don't want to live like that. I want to live the way I want to live. Uh, but the fact is that there's pleasure in sin. Verse 26 Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. All right, that's Moses. Let's go down and see what the rest of the prophets uh, went through. Let's pick it up in verse 32. And um, I believe Paul's the writer to the Hebrews. He says, what more can I say? Uh, For time would fail me to tell you of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, 
quench the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness who were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead back to life, yet others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others, these are the prophets, had trial of mocking and scourging. I think of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Chains and imprisonment. They were, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. That's how we believe Isaiah, the Isaiah, the prophet, we believe he was sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with a sword. Uh, they wandered about in the wilderness and goatskins being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Of whom the world was not worthy. Men who would not capitulate like Moses. He said, no, I'm going to be with the people of God. I'm choosing that. Knowing ahead of time that it's going to be hard and there's going to be suffering that's involved with this. Now that's um, the Old Testament prophets that we're looking at here. In the New Testament, let's just look at two of the disciples and apostles, Peter and Paul. Now last Sunday, if you weren't here, the whole message was about Simon Peter. And if you remember when we were going through his life from the time that he started out, remember I said he was from Bethsaida, and we went all the way through his whole life, and we finally got to John chapter 21, and the whole point of the message is Peter's thinking is, Lord, you don't know me. And when you get to John 21, he finally comes to the place and admits, as we did that word study in the Greek with phileo and eros and agape, the difference between the three, basically saying, Lord, you do know me. And so I'll, I'll read uh, the last three, 17 through 19, and then tie it into how Peter actually died. So I'm quoting John 21, verse 17 to Peter. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And this is the first time the Lord's asking the question that he uses the word phileo. All the other times is, do you agape me? And Peter could only respond with, Lord, you know that I phileo you. He couldn't use agape. Here, Peter was grieved because the reason he was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you phileo me instead of love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. Well, that's not what he said earlier. He says, you don't know me, Lord. I would never deceive you, never. And one of the points is uh, where we fail, a lot of times it's in our strong suit. The place you think, I would never do that. I would never, ever do that. Well, know that you probably would. And that's what Peter had to learn. So he's uh, saying, Lord, you, you know all things. You know that I'm fond of you, phileo. And then he says, then I want you to feed my sheep, Peter. Most assuredly, I say to you now, when you were younger, Peter, you girded yourself. Uh, you went where you wanted to go. We'd say you... Do, do what you want to. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you don't want to go. Verse 19 says, this he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. 
And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. This is the second time the Lord had to tell Peter to follow him. Well, how did Peter die? I'm quoting from Fox's book of martyrs right now on the death of Simon Peter. Peter's final days in Rome are not described in the scriptures, uh, but very, various traditional accounts have survived. Reportedly, uh, he spent horrific months in an infamous maritime prison, a place where incarceration was often itself a death sentence. Though mistreated, Peter survived the tortures and apparently commuted the gospel effectively to his guards. Can you imagine being chained up to Peter and not getting saved? <laughs> you can't go anywhere. <laughs> uh, and eventually he was hauled out of the dungeon, taken to Nero's circus, and there crucified upside down because Peter did not consider himself worthy to be crucified with his head upward like Christ. So the last thing that Jesus tells Peter is how he's going to die. That's how John ends, pretty much the end of the Gospel of John. All right, um, turn with me to, let's look at Paul's sufferings. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, picking it up in verse 23. Paul's talking about him being a Hebrew. Verse 23, are they ministers of Christ? I speak a fool, I am more in labors and more abundant in stripes. Now he's gonna talk about what he went through. Above measure, in prison more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now you'll notice if you're taking notes, Deuteronomy 25 verse three there. If you go back and read the law, um, the Jews, there was a punishment that was mandated that you would be given 40 lashes, but no more. So the reason that Paul says 40 stripes minus one is what if the guards would have lost count and actually did 41 instead of 40? Well, to a Jew, that's breaking the law. So they made, they stopped at 39 just in case they counted wrong. They did that to Jesus one time. They did it to Paul five times. Can you imagine what his back looked like? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a day and a night. I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of water. In perils of robber. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentile. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil. In sleeplessness often in hunger and in thirst and fasting often, in cold and nakedness. And besides that, the things that come upon me daily, my deep concern for all the church. That's quite a list. And all I can say is is he's never read Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. I just told you the largest church in the country. 
Why is it the largest church in the country? Because that's exactly what they tell you. You're never gonna hear this message out of Olstein's church. Because every book that he's ever written either has I or me or my in it. The volume of the book is not about Jesus. The volume of the book, as far as he's concerned, is about you. What do you want to hear? Should we be surprised? No. What does the scripture say? In the last days, they will gravitate towards teachers having itching ears, looking for people to tell them what they want to hear. Not what you need to hear. You need to hear that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to suffer. Need an amen after that one. But understand at the same time that in order to be, quote, quote unquote, a successful church, well, they, they evidently figure by the number of people that are involved, you're successful or not successful. People, usually if they come here, if they can handle it for two weeks, uh, they'll stick around. But after two weeks, when they figure out what this is all about, they say, this isn't exactly what I had in mind. (laughs) Where's Joel again? (laughs) So we find here, um, this list is just what Paul the Apostle went through. It's just... um, um, beyond thought, go down to, I want to begin to tie in here spiritual warfare and suffering. And we're, the next chapter is Paul being taken to heaven and showing things that he says he heard what is not lawful for a man to utter. And this could have given him a big head. You know, this could have caused Paul to be puffed up. The Bible says uh, knowledge puffs up. So he's just been to heaven and um, that could have puffed him up. So the Lord's thinking, how do I keep this guy humble? How do I keep him from getting a big head and haughty and not giving me the glory? Pick it up uh, in verse seven. And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me after the third prayer request, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's all Paul needed to hear. He says, but what I want to point out here, and we're going to see it in Job, is we have demonic activity being allowed in Paul's life. But it has a purpose for it. The purpose is, is that he would not be exalted above measure. And once he heard from the Lord, okay, Lord, I get it. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I wish I could say that. I wish I could honestly stand up here and say, you know, I love it when I go through a fiery trial. <laughs> I don't. I don't love it at all. Uh, but Paul says he's going to take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and persecution and distress for Christ's sake. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Well, that's not the thinking of this world. That's just the opposite. Um, In Luke 22, 31, going back to Peter and talking about the aspect of spiritual warfare, if you're taking notes, it's Luke 22, 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. So the Bible 
tells us that the enemy is interested in those people who are willing to take a stand for the Lord. And clearly, um, and the Lord just says, but I've prayed for you that your faith won't fail. He didn't say, I'll take care of the devil. I'm stronger than he is. No, he didn't say that at all. He said, I'm praying for you that your faith won't fail when you suffer. And then it says, when you return to me, I want you to pass it on to the brethren. Teach others. John, in writing to the church of Smyrna, again, if you're taking notes, Revelation 2.10, he says, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. From 100 A.D. to 300 A.D., there was over six, seven million martyrs for Jesus Christ. And just during that period of time, that was, I believe, was in, on a timetable, would be Smyrna. So the Lord is saying through John, do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is to, about to throw some of you in prison. Why? That you may be tested. Oh, now we're learning something. God uses the enemy, the devil, to put people in prison for what purpose? That you may be tested and you will have tribulation 10 days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you a crown. So what do we learn here? That um, suffering is, is a test of our true Christianity. Reminds me of a story that I probably haven't told in years and years and years. It's when the wall was still up and people were meeting behind the uh, Iron Curtain, secret Bible studies. Uh, You had to have contacts to find out where the house church was and so on and so forth. And um, one time, some guys broke in um, and they had machine guns right in the middle of a Bible study. And they said, um, anybody who um, doesn't want to kill get killed, you can leave now. And a bunch of people got up and left. And the guys with the machine guns put them down and he says, well, now that the hypocrites are gone, let's have a Bible study. <laughs> true story. Haven't told it in years, but true story. Here we're told that the devil is gonna put some of you in prison. Why? That you might be tested. Um, let's turn to the book of Job. In the Old Testament. A long book, but we're only going to look at the first two chapters. Job chapter 1 gives us a glimpse into the spiritual realm, uh, probably like none other. Uh, The first five verses are basically giving us information about the man Job. He's wealthy, he's wise. And um, he's respected. People travel to talk to him, to get his counsel. That's the earthly perspective. But as soon as we get to verse six, um, the veil is ripped back and we see in the spiritual realm and we're in the heavens. Verse six says, now there was a day when the sons of God, uh, that's a reference to the angels, came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, "Uh, where did you come from? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and just walking 
back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth. He's blameless, upright man, one who fears God, shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? You've put a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side. You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to his face. Take away his wealth. Take away what he has, and he'll curse you right out. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. In other words, he could do it, but um, God is still sovereign, and he's allowing this to take place. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So material stuff and family is gonna be dealt with, but don't you touch Job. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, well, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabians raided them, took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I'm the only one left to, to tell you. And this is important. While he was yet speaking, so what I'm about to read is bam, 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 bam. One right after another is getting hit with this stuff. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, well, the fire of God fell among heavens, and burned up the sheep and the servants, consumed them, and I'm the only one left to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and says that Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels, took them away, yes, killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I'm the only guy left to escape to tell you. While he's still speaking, another came in and he said, your sons, he had seven, daughters, he had three, were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house and suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house and fell on the young men. They're all dead. I alone have escaped to tell you. How's that for one right after another and then you find out all your kids have been killed too? The only thing that's left is him and his wife. Everything else is gone, wiped out in, in one day's time. So Satan said he'll curse you out if you do that. So what does Job do? Just the opposite. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshiped. Here's one of the best verses in the Bible. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not charge God wrong. Wow, is all I can say to that. To have that attitude. I came into this in the world naked. That's the way you're going out, not taking nothing with you. And he knew that. Well, that was the first assault. Chapter two, up to verse 10, is the second assault. And we find that there was another day that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came along with them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said the same thing he did the first time. Where have you been? 
Oh, so Satan answered, oh, I've been going to and fro on the face of the earth, walking back and forth. And the Lord said to Satan, well, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, blameless, upright man, one who fears God, shuns evil, and still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bones and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to him, Satan, behold, it's in your hand, but, and here's the sovereignty of God, you can't kill him. You can cause him to suffer, but you can't kill him. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head and they were pus filled. I know that's gross to say, but that's what's implied here. And he took for himself a pot shred to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Well, his wife had had all she could take And she said, do you still hold to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Please listen carefully to what I'm about to say because we don't think often of of this. But the Bible sure teaches it as a reality. What is it, Dwight? Suffering and sorrow can come from the enemy. The God of this world can affect us mentally, physically, and can actually touch our health. And there are times when there are sicknesses and you can't put your finger on it. We've been praying for our assistant pastor for the last three months. We still don't know what the problem is. And I have to wonder, we, we've talked about it openly, um, could be spiritual warfare. And I have to ask myself, well, that's, that's a pretty heavy thing to say. Does the Bible teach that the enemy can actually uh, produce whirlwinds? And uh, can he actually touch your body and cause it to be um, sick? Absolutely. Uh, by the way, Peter, Simon's asked for you, Satan's asked for he wants to sift you. Um, ch- challenged here, he was able to kill three of um, Job's daughters, seven of his sons, and he, he was able to cause physical affliction uh, to Job uh, himself. As we begin to wind this up this morning, I want to give you the main reason that God allows affliction. I'm not going to have you turn there. It's the longest psalm in the Bible. And uh, I think the main reason that God allows affliction. I'm quoting Psalm 119, verse 67, which says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept your word. That's one you want to put to memory. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I have kept your word. You see, there is a reason for suffering. And, um, but I think there's even a more important one that I want to close the study with this morning. 
And I need you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for this one. Oh no, I got more after that. And that's Psalm 55. Boy, I'm glad I didn't miss this one. Because there's another element of suffering that, that might be the most painful of all. Um, I'm looking at a Psalm of David. And this is, this is a su- suffering that happens when you lose a friend who at one time was one of your closest friends. This can produce a sorrow and a grief that is extremely painful. That's what Psalm 55 is about. So as I pick it up in verse 10, um, he's talking about a particular person. In verse 10 of 55, day and night they go around in on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in their midst. Deceit and guile do not depart from its streets. And then David says this, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has magnified himself against me. Then I could hide from him. He says, no, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, my acquaintance. Oh, we took sweet counsel together. We, we walked to the house of God and the throne. Here's one of uh, the closest people to David and they worshiped and all of a sudden something has happened. Well, I'll tell you who he's uh, writing about. The man's name is Ahipothel. He was one of, a man of great wisdom and he was one of David's counselors and if King David is saying he's one of his equals, we're talking quite a man here, Ahipothel. Well, what happened is Absalom, uh, he sweet-talked the people to the point that he had won the hearts of most of Israel over to himself. Now, this was all part of a plot because David sent Absalom away from a while and wouldn't allow him to come home. And during that time, Absalom's hatred towards his father David grew so that the word is out that Absalom is marching on Jerusalem and David has to run for his life. And as he's running, um, he gets a report that um, Absalom has taken the throne. He's taking your wives. He set up a tent so everybody can see it all over Jerusalem that uh, Absalom is going in onto your wives, David. And there's also a report that Ahipothel is with him. And David says, oh no, not Ahipothel. Anybody but Ahipothel. He'll give wise counsel to my foolish son Absalom. Absalom had determined to kill his father. They actually had a meeting. How should we do it? What's the best way? And Ahipothel was part of this meeting. And they asked counsel from the young men. The young men tell them to do one thing and then they asked counsel of Ahipothel. And Absalom didn't like the counsel of Ahipothel, so he rejected the counsel of, of Ahipothel, and Ahipothel goes out and kills himself because he's wise enough to know that what they're about to do in killing David isn't going to work. He knew David too well. Well, here's the point of all this. Here, 
David is saying one of the great sorrows in life, everybody here has experienced it to one degree or another, a loved one, a friend that you went to church with, that you loved, has turned and betrayed you and is doing everything in his power to destroy you. That's what David is saying. He said, I could have handled it if it was an enemy, but that's not the case. He was a man my equal, my companion and acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked in the house of God in the throne. You need to know that being betrayed by a friend can produce some of the greatest heartache and sorrow that a person can ever go through. Good place for an amen? It's true. And um, um, now I can go to my closing verse, which is in 2 Corinthians. I think there's a deeper reason that we have sorrow in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 And I will close with this. Suffering and groaning can produce a longing. It can produce a longing to finally get out of here. (laughs) To finally be with the Lord. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5 is telling us, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed that's our body, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heaven. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. For in this we groan. I'm gonna stop and ask this great out. Do you? Do you groan and say, Lord, how much longer do we gotta put up with this world? Or my body, my hip is going out in this side. I, want, I can't do what I used to do. I'm groaning about it. For in this we groan earnestly desiring, do we really? To be clothed with the habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this body groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In other words, I want to be with Jesus. I want that new body to the extent that I groan and groan to the point of um, saying, Lord, perhaps today <laughs> be great before we had moved the pews after one o'clock this afternoon as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so as we look at our study this morning, we see that there's a lot that can be said about there is a reason. So the next time somebody says, how can a loving God ever allow suffering in the world? Tell them, I got a Bible study for you and what the word of God has to say from it all the way from Job all the way to the book of Revelation. All those, not some, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. That again, as we go through it, we see that it speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we're glad that we have a deeper understanding of the significance and the importance of suffering. Not not only to know the power of the resurrection, but the other side of that coin is the fellowship of your suffering. I pray for any that are suffering this morning, Lord, going through trials, can't figure out the spiritual warfare they're in, just let them know that it's just part of the natural life that um, is to those that 
call on your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. It don't work. He knew David too well. Well, here's the point of all this. Here, David is saying one of the great sorrows in life, everybody here has experienced it to one degree or another, a loved one, a friend that you went to church with, that you loved, has turned and betrayed you and is doing everything in his power to destroy you. That's what David is saying. He said, I could have handled it if it was an enemy, but that's not the case. He was a man my equal, my companion and acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and we walked in the house of God and the throne. You need to know that being betrayed by a friend can produce some of the greatest heartache and sorrow that a person can ever go through. Good place for an amen. It's true. And um, um, now I can go to my closing verse, which is in 2 Corinthians. I think there's a deeper reason that we have sorrow in this world. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I will close with this. Suffering and groaning can produce a longing. It can produce a longing to finally get out of here. (laughs) To finally be with the Lord. And that's what 2 Corinthians 5 is telling us, verses 1 through 5. For we know that if this earthly house, this tent is destroyed, that's our body, that we have a building from God, a house not made with hands. It's eternal in the heaven. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. For in this we groan. I'm gonna stop and ask this great out. Do you? Do you groan? And say, Lord, how much longer do we gotta put up with this world? Or my body, my hip is going out on this side. I, want, I can't do what I used to do. I'm groaning about it. For in this we groan earnestly desiring, do we really? To be clothed with the habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this body groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. In other words, I want to be with Jesus. I want that new body. To the extent that I groan and groan to the point of um, saying, Lord, perhaps today, <laughs> be great before we had moved the pews after one o'clock this afternoon, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> so as we look at our study this morning, we see that there's a lot that can be said about there is a reason. So the next time somebody says, how can a loving God ever allow suffering in the world? Tell them, I got a Bible study for you. And what the word of God has to say from it, all the way from Job, all the way to the book of Revelation. All those, not some, all those that live godly in Christ Jesus are going to suffer persecution. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. That again, as we go through it, we see that it speaks the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And we're glad that we have a deeper understanding of the significance and the importance of suffering. Not not only to know the power of the resurrection, but the other side of that coin is the fellowship of your suffering. I pray for any that are suffering this morning, Lord, going through trials, 
can't figure out the spiritual warfare they're in, just let them know that it's just part of the natural life that um, is to those that call on your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.